If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Big stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Coming up next week, June 24th through 26th in Calgary. And then August 12th through 14th in Edmonton, it's the Great Outdoors Comedy Festival. Featuring such names as Bill Burr, Whitney Cummings, Pete Davidson, Amy Schumer, Polly Shore. Headlining the event, though, next Friday, Prince's Island Park in Calgary. Uh, star of Saturday Night Live, star of Just Shoot Me, star of Tommy Boy, Black Sheep, Joe Dirt, The Wrong Missy, just to name a few. He's co-host of the Fly on the Wall podcast. His latest comedy special is called Nothing Personal. Streaming now on Netflix. Joining us on the line is one and only David Spade. David, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. That guy sounds like he did a lot. I read read all his credits. (laughs) I had to trim that down. That's that's a lot there. No, it's good to talk to you. Thanks for making some time for us here today. How How are things in your world? Great. I'm still in Los Angeles, uh, prepping to head out that way and looking forward to it. Should be good. And we mentioned uh, Nothing Personal uh, now streaming on Netflix. I also wanted to mention uh, another comedy special called Nothing Special, uh, which was really beautiful and poignant. This this piece recorded by Norm MacDonald. Uh, and, of course, it features you and Adam Sandler, Dave Letterman, a, a few other friends of Norm, reflecting, sharing stories. It, it was really well done. It was really beautiful. Uh, I'm, I'm sure for you it was it was emotional. Just, uh, you know, a, a thought on that experience. Yeah, that was actually kind of a tough thing to do because it was sort of a funeral. I mean, de facto funeral because we never had one and everyone was there and, you know, you're going to speak and then there's a dolly shot coming your way yeah. <laughs> from, a cam- from a camera and that's unusual, but it was good to see all these people in there and, you know, it's supposed to be a fun event and supposed to be lighthearted and it was, but... It's still tough. I mean, because that's the first time. All that, and then you know, we go into another building and to watch the special. But that's even harder because now I'm seeing him. I've been talking to him on text and uh, trying to plan dinners and meet, and he he keeps getting out of it last minute. But he doesn't say why. He just said, "Oh, he's scared of COVID or something." And and then you see the video, and right away, I'm not even thinking of the jokes. And it's like, oh wow. Yeah, he's gonna lie. You know, all that stuff is hard. So I'm not good at that shit anyway. I don't know if anyone is, but you're being filmed. And I don't even know what I said after. I didn't watch it because I just said whatever I said and try to keep it light, and move on. But it was definitely a tricky situation. We mentioned your latest uh, called Nothing Personal, um, which I, I think was recorded earlier this year, um, which I'd imagine there was kind of a, a long gap, wasn't there, where you weren't performing, the opportunity to finally get back on stage and, you know, try, try to digest and process everything for the last couple of years. What was that like for you? Yeah, I wasn't getting the reps in, but then I had enough before that. I mean, I had enough time. I was happy with it. I 
went to Minnesota. We had a problem possibly shooting in Austin right before that, so we had to move it. There's, you know, restrictions and things, and Minnesota sort of fell into place. But we had to wear a mask. I mean, they had to wear it as an audience, which is maybe the number one thing you don't want as a performer. (laughs) you're, You're going to try to find... You get to pick anywhere in the country to shoot it with a great crowd, and no matter how great, you're going to cut 50% laughs off because they're muffled. So that's the tough part. Minnesota was a blast, and I had fun shows there. I really liked the special. And so I'm just glad I did a Netflix special, and it's out there. And now people are going to hear some of that and some other stuff, and uh it's just good. It, it, it makes people aware if they only know me from the wrong Missy or, you know, rules of engagement or grownups that they're stand up there too. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I mean, yeah, you mentioned some of the work you've been doing with Netflix. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of an interesting relationship and, and the movies, I mean, you know, it seems like 20 or 25 years ago, the wrong Missy would have been uh, a theatrical release, but, um, you know, it's a different yeah. world now, right? I mean, is it is it still the same for you? Is it still the same kind of process or the same kind of reward when when a movie does well? Yeah, I mean, it, it, in a way, it was better because you know, I mean, eventually, because it got culty, Joe Dirt turned into you know a hundred million dollar video where it just got passed around and passed around and yeah. This guy I knew from, that was one of the heads of Walmart, said, oh, you know that video, that, that's just one people throw in their cart like every day. <laughs> really? So huh? back in the DVD days, you know, and he said, so that's made us so much money and and it seeps into the world. It takes 10 years, but then pretty much everyone has seen it. Grownups is like that. It's on TBS every day, but we got the theaters. Um, and then you look at Wrong Missy, when they said at the end of the first month, 55 million people had watched part of it or all of it or whatever, I mean, 55 million. You think if tickets are, you know, $15. That's a blockbuster. And a, and, yeah, you know, it's sure. a block, you know, it's a, <laughs> if you see, let's say 10 million people see your movie at 15, that's a $150 million movie. So for 55 million, I mean, that was the only problem is I couldn't celebrate. I couldn't even go to dinner. It was just really good to have a movie it's seen by so many people get so high up in the Netflix rankings of movies. So talking about doing another one now. We've been talking for a while, trying to just pick you know, it's hard when you have one that actually does that good, you go, Is this one the one? Is this one is this one good enough? You know. <laughs> that that's the hard part. We're trying to just zero in on one. Well, I just watched your buddy Adam's new flick. Are you looking to maybe flex some of those uh dramatic chops or leave that to him <laughs> you know i wouldn't mind i think when you get to adam's level he can pick any director in the country and any script in the country so that's not everyone's choice you know that's that's left for a few people in some rarefied air so i think it is bar mitzvah i sat with the director of chernobyl oh, really? and i'm like uh these are the guys you get to meet when you're at this level and you get big budgets and it's great for him. Uh, If those things come my way, they come my way, but it's more you get picked for a certain type of comedy, certain brand of comedy. People say, why don't you do more? It's like, because if they have even a comedy that's a little different than you do, they give it to someone else. They're like, that's more Owen Wilson. We'll give it to him. Oh, that's more (laughs) Vince Vaughn. Oh, that's more Kevin Hart. You know, so 
or give that to Melissa McCarthy. So that's, there's a lot out there that are good. And so you just keep chugging along and do your best with what you get. Yeah. And sometimes I mean, write them. Yeah. yeah. Right. And you're branching out another way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, I do the podcast is fun. I'll always yeah. do something. I did the special, which was really fun. Uh, I'm writing one, like a hard R rated comedy, buddy comedy. And that's fun too. So at this point, everything's been sort of proven and done and you just get to go. I don't want to do too many things I don't love. Um, because I was smart enough to put money away where I can last a full month if I need it. <laughs> and so that's all you really need, I think. Um, so I will try to uh, just pick and choose things that are fun for me. But I still have a great time. I mean, I think Adam and Rob and Rock and I will all try to do one more um, with Netflix just for fun. It's just fun. It's just great memories. Those grown-ups are great memories. Oh, yeah. The shooting, everything about them. And the podcast, I mean, you and Dana are great, and it seems like you guys have a blast doing that. I mean, clearly you're close. I would imagine once upon a time he was kind of an oh. intimidating figure in your life. But That's very true. <laughs> he was. And we've grown to be buddies, and uh, we were always buddies, but now I see him a lot. And just in the next week, shooting. I mean, Bob Odenkirk's airing today, Martin Short's airing next week, and then we've got, we're shooting Jimmy Fallon, Maya Rudolph, John Mulaney. It's just, it's just never-ending cavalcade of great comic people to talk to so i love that and i'll just keep sticking and jiving it's such a unique fraternity isn't it the snl club you know those who have been on as cast members those who have been writers those who appeared as, as guest hosts like there's a real bond that's that's created and especially with you know you and dana and you guys I've been through it. I mean, you went through the ringer as a writer before a cast member. You know what a pressure cooker that is like. What, what sticks with you about that experience? I think it sticks with you that how hard it was and how tough the competition was. Coming from Arizona, I was pretty funny comic. Got a little better. I was a middle act. I was a pretty good middle act. Going out on the road, not really having a ton of experience back east or anything. And just getting plucked because someone saw I had good writing. And they said... We like this take on things. Now you're going to write for the biggest show, for the best people. That that writer's room, forget about how good the cast is. Just the writing, I'm just trying not to stand out like what a rookie, you know. And I was a rookie. Yeah. But Odenkirk was there and Conan and Smigel and Jack Handy. Wow. Jim Downey and just everybody. And then you're also Mike Myers writing and Dennis Miller writes stuff and Sandler and Rock, you know, Chris Rock. These are some of the greatest guys out there. And you don't know it really at the time. You just start going, God, is everyone this good? Am I way out of my league? Like, it took so long to just get to a point where you can relax and have some confidence. And so when you leave, your question is, when you leave, you go, hey, man, I did something good because I, I kept the balls in the air with these people. At least I didn't stand out as way worse. You don't have to be better. <laughs> just don't be way worse. You know? Uh, yeah. You still have those. Though. You still have those dreams where you wake up and, like, you know, your sketches due in an hour. And it's dress well, rehearsal. What you have is when you go back to host, you almost get sick walking down the hallway. Like, oh, I remember <laughs> that. And when you're a host, the biggest dream is everyone writes for you. So you're in a pitch meeting going, "Are you? Me? I can never think of one idea for myself, or maybe one for the host." And then there's like, here's. 15 people going, you would play a Russian guy, you would play a guy that does it. I'm like, 
and you're going to write it <laughs> for me? And I just sit here. Oh, they go, yeah, you can punch it up. I go, this is a dream. That's perfect. So that's fun. But yeah, when you go back in the halls or just to visit, you go, oh, let's get that sick feeling. Was mentioned, nothing personal. It's uh, streaming now on Netflix, but you're going to be uh, in Calgary next Friday, June 24th, headlining uh, the Great Outdoors Comedy Festival, greatoutdoorscomedyfestival.com. David, it's been a real honor and pleasure. Thanks so much for making some time for us here today. Thank you. I got Whitney and Don L. It's going to be a big show. It'll be a lot of fun. All right. David, all the best. Take care. There you all go. Right, One and only David Spade, as mentioned, next Friday, the Great Outdoors Comedy Festival. We're back with more right after this. All right, welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here on this uh, Wednesday afternoon. Got a few other things to get to uh, in our time remaining, but let's turn our attention to Bill C-11, which in its previous iteration was Bill C-10, but essentially the same thing. The Online Streaming Act, the government is looking to ostensibly update, modernize the Broadcasting Act, which maybe arguably uh, there's a case to be made for that. But this is a rather, shall we say, awkward approach to try to bring in the world of online streaming services into the realm of the CRTC. And it's one thing to say, okay, you know, we got to regulate uh, Netflix or Disney or Spotify. Whether we do or not is debatable. But what's really concerning here is the extent to which uh, users and content creators are going to be dragged into this. Uh, the Canadian uh, TikTok content generators or YouTubers are now going to fall into the realm of the CRTC. And that we're going to have discoverability requirements, CanCon requirements uh, in these realms. It's it's not a, a, a an easy fit, to say the least. And so there are a lot of concerns about the implications and, and the way in which the government's gone about this, and especially the assurances and the shifting narratives uh, around how user-generated content is to be regulated. Now comes the latest twist. Now, Bill C-11 is not likely to pass the Senate until the fall. We're coming up quick on the summer break. Yet, at the same time, there's an urgency It seems the government is moving to uh, cut short debate on C-11, despite the fact that there are amendments uh, that lawmakers haven't even had a chance to really look at. So what are we to make of that? Well, someone who's been following all of this closely has been a great resource in in helping us understand uh, all of this is uh, Michael Geist. He's a a professor, law professor at the University of Ottawa's Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law. Much more at his website, michaelgeist.ca. Professor Geist, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. All right, so what's the latest? I know they were moving to to cut uh, cut short debate. Has that now concluded? They did, and they, in fact, did cut short debate. Uh, Just yesterday was the date for what's known as clause-by-clause review, where the members of Parliament on that committee go through each clause in the bill and propose various amendments. And what the Heritage Minister, Pablo Rodriguez, and the government said was they were going to give the committee just a single day basically six hours to review all the amendments. There apparently were about 170 of them, uh, ask questions, potentially propose sub-amendments, uh, engage in debate. It's nowhere near enough. The government knew it wouldn't be anywhere near enough. And so what they said was that if you run out of time at 9 o'clock Eastern, you will then move to just directly considering amendment after amendment, no discussion, no debate, not even any public disclosure about what you're voting on. We'll just name the amendment and you'll vote. And they did that for hours last night, finishing it after midnight, as they went on for hour after hour after hour, going through an incredible number of amendments that nobody knew what they involved. There was no debate, no discussion. It was, quite frankly, just a shocking um, derogation from what I think most would say to be conventional and real democratic norms about how you'd like to see laws being made. 
And again, even if the government wants to argue there's some urgency here, uh, you know, the, the quote from Tourism Minister Randy Wassenau said, well, we are reluctant to be at this stage. This is crucial, crucial legislation. Canadians asked us to pass this. They want us to move on. As I noted, I mean, the government has already conceded that this isn't going to pass before the summer break. The Senate's not going to deal with this until the fall. So how do we explain that uh, contradiction? I don't think you can. I think you're absolutely right. I mean, I think this is, at the end of the day, this was being driven by the Heritage Minister Rodriguez looking for a political win, put it off his plate and say, hey, I got this passed in the House. But the the price that we pay for that, you know, I think uh, somewhat illusory political victory is, is enormous, as we've been talking about from a democratic perspective. And the simple reality is that there was no deadline here. You could make the case that the committee was taking a long time, that the conservatives oftentimes were uh, engaging in long speeches, you know, described as filibustering. And so you wanted the committee to get on out of the debate stage and witness stage into considering the clauses. But you could have done that and left the committee to engage in appropriate review of the amendments, appropriate review of the clauses. But they didn't do that. They said, we're just going to rush it through a committee with all this clause-by-clause review. And the intention then is to rush it through the House of Commons later this week so that there's very little further on debate. I have to say that the likelihood that there's even mistakes, because no one even knows, at least as literally as we speak, nobody even knows, it seems, at least publicly, what's even in the bill now, because there were all these amendments that nobody knew what they involved, some approved, some not approved. Uh, it is a crazy way to go about making laws after you've gone through a process of hearing from all these witnesses and then basically just tossing all that to the side and moving forward with the process that they did. I mean, it's possible the Senate will take its time and, and go through all of this, but I mean, it's, it's just unfortunate that, uh, you know, that, that responsibility is, is there for our elected politicians, and, and they've chosen to, to punt this to the Senate. So, um, I mean, are you optimistic, A, that I guess the Senate will be able to take its time and go through clause by clause, or, or where this, this leaves the chamber at, at that point? Well, you know, as you well know, this is the follow-up to Bill C-10 from yeah. last year, and when that was rushed through to get through the House and went to the Senate... Uh, the Senate made it clear that they were not going to be a rubber stamp for this. They wanted to ensure that there was an appropriate review. Um, that bill ultimately died because of the election call. But we find ourselves, I think, in much the same kind of situation. There's no threat to the bill this time. There's no expectation of an election call. But the same concerns that this government and this committee in particular did not go through the kind of review that I think senators, that I think more, and more broadly Canadians would expect for legislation that this that's this important really makes it incumbent on the Senate to say, you know what, we have to pick up for the failures of the of the House of Commons committee, which failed to hear from many witnesses and then, you know, absolutely failed to engage in an appropriate review. And so the it's what is this absolutely essential is that the Senate take take their role seriously by saying, okay, we're gonna we're not necessarily start from scratch, but we're gonna hear from all those those stakeholders are concerned. We're going to hear from those that didn't have their chance before the House, and then we're going to go through a real clause-by-clause clause and determine whether or not there needs to be changes. There's a lot of testimony, uh, you know, around this bill. I mean, you testified, obviously, but we heard from a lot of others uh, talking about the, the potential harms, the potential impact of this bill, and what could fall within the scope of the CRTC, user-generated content, content that includes music. Like, the implications of all of this are far-reaching, and, and we're at a point where we're not entirely clear on, on the full impact because of all these these amendments now that have been attached, but those broader concerns are, are still there, it seems. 
Oh, they absolutely are. Uh, you know, the concerns are there for one because of the sort of secretive process that we saw take place yesterday. But even beyond that, uh, what is apparent from the discussion is that uh, they largely ignored many of the concerns around user content. And so, for example, the the one uh, amendment that directly tried to address that issue actually came from the Green Party. And when it, it, it was raised, there was some amount of debate, but when the clock struck nine, and it was time for the government, uh, according to this government motion, to stop debate. They stopped debate. And so they literally cut off debate on that amendment. It was proceeded to be defeated by government NDP and block MPs. And the broader concerns that users had, that many digital creators have, have largely been cast aside. It, it's quite remarkable to see a government that has been so, so, so anxious to try to please certain cultural lobby groups when it came to this legislation, even to address some of their concerns. And they heard from group after group after group, creator after creator after creator, saying that they're deeply concerned with this proposal. And the Heritage Minister, Pablo Rodriguez, and others in the, others on the government side simply you know, just either ignored or just dismissed those concerns almost entirely. Well, and we saw this with C10, where it was pretty clear that, that user-generated content was, you know, within the, the parameters of the legislation. The government insisted otherwise. Then they claimed that they had made some changes uh, that, 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 you know, made that true, that it wasn't going to, to include user-generated content. But obviously, there were still some provisions that did. So we saw examples where government claims about the legislation didn't match up with the actual text of the legislation. Did, do we still have uh, somewhat of a disconnect there, Michael? Oh, we absolutely do. In fact, I think it's fair to say that the Heritage Minister Rodriguez has been contradicted by just about every witness that appeared before the committee. And so he was contradicted by the chair of the CRTC, who said that user-generated content was something that was included within their regulatory powers. He was contradicted by TikTok, which said that their reading of the law was that every TikTok video with music could be captured. He was contradicted by YouTube, who similarly said that this was capturing user-generated content. And then he was contradicted by both the experts and a myriad of digital-first creators who looked at the legislation and were deeply fearful about its implications. And yet to all of those uh, voices, he essentially engages in gaslighting by saying, well, no, that's not what's in the bill. Even though you know, expert after expert, person, stakeholder after stakeholder, all says otherwise. It's, it's, it's an astonishing piece of theater, as it were, from this minister. Uh, but I think a, a terrible abdication of responsibility to a, a vitally important cultural sector in Canada. Much more on all of this is mentioned, michaelgeist.ca. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. We'll see where this all goes from here. But appreciate you making some time for us here today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks, All the best. Uh, that's uh, Dr. Michael Geist, uh, Canada Research Chair in Internet and E-Commerce Law at the University of Ottawa. He's a law professor there as well. So like I say, he's written extensively about this. If you want to really kind of understand uh, some of the background issues here, again, michaelgeist.ca, great resource. And yeah, look, I mean, he's testified before the, the committee on this, and uh, you know, he's been a leading critic of the government's approach here. Why go after user-generated content? Look, if you want to make an argument that, okay, Netflix is like a broadcaster... Sure. Okay. I mean, you can you can make that argument. Uh, those companies are generating content that that's comparable. Uh, but someone who's at home making TikTok videos or you know YouTube, here's me playing this you know this this new PlayStation game. Like, why do we need the CRTC policing all of that? 
So it's it seems like a dramatic overreach on the government's part, and it doesn't seem like they learned the lessons of C-10, which kind of blew up in their face, and they just basically have done it all again here with C-11. And just the weirdness of this week, never mind the, the, the specifics of the legislation, like regardless of what the bill is, to, to throw all of these amendments in last minute, uh, cut debate short, expect MPs to vote on a bill with amendments that they haven't even had a chance to look at. All for what? So this bill can sit there over the summer and then the Senate will get to it sometime in the fall. So there's an urgency, but there's not. Makes no sense. Welcome back. Afternoons on 770 CHQR. Rob Ridge with you. As you've been hearing on the news, uh, there's some optimism that uh, the worst may be over in terms of the rainfall. City officials watching closely. The Bow River expected to crest this afternoon after a couple of rough days. Uh, but at this point, it doesn't appear as though there's going to be a need to evacuate into communities. No significant uh, overland flooding been reported. Certainly we saw some damage from the wind yesterday. But, uh, you know, based on some of the forecasts, uh, you know, there was the concern that we wouldn't necessarily get 2013 all over again, but that this could be a problem. Uh, So maybe it's a combination of uh, our preparedness, lessons learned from from 2013, and a bit of luck uh, that that we uh, seem to have avoided anything serious this time. Uh, we're expecting those levels to remain high in in the coming days. And and look, we we could still face some some situations in the days and weeks ahead here. And, And this is an ongoing issue, right? Every single year. There's the possibility that we could have a problem uh, with flooding. You know, there, there are certainly some vulnerabilities that exist, just some natural vulnerabilities that exist in Calgary. And we can try to mitigate, but, but they do exist. I want to sort of take that big picture view of, you know, what we've learned about the vulnerabilities of this city, how best to protect this city, and certainly some lessons learned specifically from the disaster in 2013. Something that came out of that disaster in 2013 was the foundation of a group called the Calgary River Communities Action Group. Uh, and you can find them on the web at protectcalgary.com. Uh, joining us to talk a bit more about uh, all of this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, a wearer of many hats in our fine city, but one of the founders of the Calgary River Communities Action Group. Emma May joins us on the line here this afternoon. Emma, how are you doing? Welcome to the program. Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, Good to have you with us here this afternoon. So obviously you've been watching closely like a lot of Calgarians have over the last few days. You know, that question, I guess, you know, was it that we were prepared this time? We got a bit of luck this time, a combination of both. What, what's your sense of how it's all played out here? Well, I think it's I think it's a combination of both. Um, I think you know the big thing that we know and that we learned as an organization uh, just after 2013 really is that Calgary was founded at the confluence of two rivers, and we have experienced over the course of the history of you know this area uh, seasons of well uh, long season rather long periods of time like. 60 to 80 year stretches of wet and then both drought. And so when we look at the tree ring data and we look at history, we know that from, you know, 1874 to 1932, we experienced about six or seven big floods that were, you know, close to or on par with what we experienced in 2013. And in fact, one of them was like significantly more that would put the entire downtown core underwater. So, you know, and then we did all of our development in this period of, drought really right and so we built this this city here and now we need to take the steps to protect it and we're, we've started down that road we have yeah and it's interesting as you know that i mean you know the city's been here a long time but it's taken us a long time to really truly understand the yeah. risk and the vulnerabilities right 
Yeah, totally. And it's, you know, it's a bit of this sort of collective mistake, right? Like yeah. we've got, um, but lots of cities are founded at the confluence of rivers or along rivers. Uh, I think I mentioned, right, like Paris arms its embankments, London's got the Thames floodgates. Um, these are things that, you know, infrastructure is built to deal with that. And we, you know, we're a relatively new city and we never did do that. I think back in the 1970s, early 80s, there was been some reports commissioned that indicated that we needed to take some steps um, and we never did. And then, you know, we got hit in 2005 and then 2013. So that, you know, and now we've sort of got climate change and we don't really, you know, know how these cycles may change or how much more we may get. So yeah, we're taking the steps. We've uh, there's lots of stuff that's happened on the elbow. We've got the the Springbank offstream diversion being built, which will help significantly there. Um, you know, it really would prevent a, 19, a 2013 event on that. And there's you know the province and the city have been working with Transalta on managing the infrastructure on the bow. There's already some dams on the bow, um, and making sure that that sort of works in coordination, but there's some, some things around the storm sewage stuff that needs to happen around Sunnyside and probably some more uh, infrastructure along the boat, but that's a really big project. It's also this notion, and I don't know where this notion came from, and, and you can address it, uh, this idea that, you know, this is a one in 100 year event. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I think it gives people a false sense of security, like, okay, it happened in 2013, so we're good for a while. But that, that's not, it's not accurate to say that, is it? No, in fact, it's actually sort of more like this idea of a 1% chance, right? And and I liken that. So there's a 1% chance every year we could face something like this. And, you know, if I'm selling you a lottery ticket, that's one you'll probably buy all day sure. long. Um, <laughs> so, you know, and then and as we look back in time, we've seen that we sort of go through these cycles of, you know, this period of time from the late 1800s to sort of the early 1900s, where we did have significant flooding events, kind of, you know, three, five, ten years interspersed. And then we went to this period where we really didn't. So, you know, the way we think about this has to shift. And we have to be prepared for these kinds of events. And likewise, we're going to have to be prepared for drought events in the future as well. Yeah, that's a whole other issue. Uh, But in terms of what we learned from 2013, what we've done since then, on on the smaller scale, also the big projects, it's taken a long time to to get the Springbank uh, Reservoir Project uh, up and running. So have have we done the right things or, or, or what's still missing in your view? Uh, we're on our way. Uh, there needs to be some stuff that happens along the bow. And, you know, unfortunately, too, these, these are always sort of conversations about trade-offs, right? Because the, the thing with water is it goes somewhere, right? right. Like, <laughs> um, and so people are always like, oh, well, you just put a burn here or you just throw something there. And it's, it's like, well, and then where does it go? Um, and so who then do we put at risk? And what are the trade-offs that we're willing to make in order to sort of for these these projects to happen and you know who who is paying the price for that in the long run you know the springbank project run ahead essentially there were landowners who did need to be you know paid out and there were environmental sort of reviews that needed to be done at the end of the day though it was a rather large sort of uh grassland that that was taken over and it was deemed to be sort of the most environmentally friendly and easiest way to do that without without actually making huge impacts. So, and we also have water uh, obligations. So, you know, the, the things that I learned right after this and our whole organization learned was that the, you know, water is an incredibly, and our water basins are these incredibly complicated inter, you know, spurs systems. And we have 
you know, water implications and obligations to communities that are downstream us from us, that are upstream from us. Yeah. Um, and how does all of that play out? So, you know, this, this stuff takes time and it's not easy and it's incredibly complicated. And anybody who proposes that there's some really, really simple solution, um, yeah, it's not the case. What about division? I don't know if it's political, but or maybe it's NIMBYism at some degree. I mean, you know, the Spring Bank project had a lot of opposition, but even within Calgary, right? I mean, there are communities uh, far removed from, from all of this, communities clearly that were, were unscathed, unaffected by what happened in 2013. Is there a sense that, you know, it's, it's these communities' problems, the ones that are on the floodplain, that's, that's their problem, and those that are far removed, it's not their problem? Or, or do you think we come to a point where people view this as, as a Calgary issue, not a communities issue? Uh, well, they should view it as a Calgary issue. Uh, and, and I mean, I can see why people don't, though. I'm, I can see why people are like, oh, you know what? Here's all these lovely houses that are built along the river. How stupid are you to build your house on the river? Ha ha. Too bad for you. Um, but that's actually not the case because, you know, we had the Saddle Dome flood. We had City Hall flood. We had basically we had the entire downtown core, one transformer off, um, having power shut out for, you know, months on end. So, you know, this, and, and that was something that really came into very clear focus for me when I saw what that flood would look like that we had sort of in the early 1900s if we superimposed those flow rates over our downtown core today. And it would basically have all of that infrastructure, all of those buildings, all of those towers, all of those elevators out of commission. And that is a massive economic problem for the city of Calgary. So this really is all of our problems. It's not about the individual houses that are along the river. This is about making sure that our city is safe for us to do development in, for us to continue to grow in, for us to continue to be an economic powerhouse. And, you know, we're going through this period of time right now where we're kind of counter-cyclical to the rest of the country. Um, oil prices are high. Things are looking really good in Alberta at the moment. And, you know, we need to take the steps to ensure that, you know, we don't get wiped out by a flood of all stupid yeah. things. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, much more is mentioned. Uh, ProtectCalgary.com, the Calgary River Communities Action Group. Emma, thanks so much for joining us here today. Really appreciate this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Rob. All the best. Take care. Uh, that's uh, Emma May, a uh, lawyer. Uh, among other things, entrepreneur, uh, like I say, wear many hats uh, in this city, but uh, one of the founders of the uh, Calgary River Communities Action Group, ProtectCalgary.com. So some interesting thoughts on you know, what we've learned about this city, what we've learned about vulnerabilities, lessons we've learned, changes we've made, and you know, maybe changes uh, we still need to make. Welcome to the Sound of the Program. Alberta doctors are sounding the alarm over... Uh, growing pressure on emergency rooms, what they're describing as unprecedented wait times. Disastrous overcrowding, as our next guest has referred to it. Wait times at some hospitals in major cities uh, up to six hours or more. There's also uh, a problem of what they're calling access block. Uh, that specialized inpatient units are often full. So some patients admitted to an emergency space. Uh, with a significant illness, can't be transferred, which increases wait times for new arrivals. That's what they refer to as, as access block. So this is all coinciding as seemingly the, the burden of COVID, COVID starts to ease on our hospital system. So why are emergency rooms under such pressure right now? Obviously, one of the concerns is that, you know, hearing about all of this is going to discourage people from going to an ER. But obviously, if that's a necessary visit, we certainly don't want that to happen either. 
But doctors say something needs to be done, both in the short term and the immediate term, and also longer term, uh, to address these pressures. Joining us to, to talk more about all of these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program Dr. Paul Parks. He's president of Emergency Medicine with the Alberta Medical Association. Dr. Parks, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks for having me here. All right. Well, you know, certainly for anyone who's who's had to use an emergency room, I mean, people can can attest to this. But uh, you know, overcrowding, long delays. Uh, what, what's what's going on here? First of all. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a, the the emerge itself is kind of the canary in the coal mine where we're the we're definitely the the where all the parts of the system that don't work well. Um, if you, patients can't get access to care, whether it's their family doc or cancer care or mental health care or surgical care, then they end up having to come to the emergency department. And just over the last three four months, it's just been gradually getting worse and worse in our big emergency departments where that access block and that inability to see, you know, the right patient at the right place at the right time has just become kind of almost catastrophic now, actually. What's the pandemic factor here? I mean, you know, certainly uh, COVID-related hospitalizations uh, have been trending down, but, uh, you know, there is still that pressure on the system. To what extent is, is that contributing right now? Well, there's no question that two two and a half years of long battle of COVID and the pandemic has really uh, tapped out our resources and stressed our staffing. So that so our staffing at, are at kind of record lows now after after the last two years. So that's a major challenge. Uh, the other thing that's critical to know, I mean, I don't have the exact numbers today for uh, what Alberta services and the and the COVID numbers are across the province. But last I saw, you know, they were around. Uh, a thousand so it's not the 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 challenge with admitted COVID that that's a thousand patients admitted to hospitals throughout Alberta right now um, that's still a lot of patients so it's it's by by no means over so the challenges of having lots of sick COVID patients for you know more than two years is, has really um, escalated a lot of our capacity and staffing challenges would be would be fair to say. Well, sure. And on the staffing side, I mean, you know, having having staff uh, out sick or having staff out of rotation for whatever reasons. What what are the challenges on the staffing side right now? Oh, so we're really struggling with uh, almost all of our uh, varied staffing levels for the allied healthcare workers. So from you know nurses, but to nursing aides, to our respiratory therapists, to pretty much every level, our EMS and our crews out that are seeing the sick patients and. Uh, out in the community, even, and then, and then, of course, we're we're starting to see more and more struggles with uh, access to family physicians and to specialists and and all types of physicians. So, uh, as senior leads have repeatedly said, that our 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 staffing vacancies and and hiring challenges are the worst they've ever been. And and so, what that means to people. Uh, wanting to come into the system is that it's it's not at all abnormal that emergency departments are only working with three quarter staff or or the floors where the sick patients are admitted up in internal medicine are are working with you know seventy percent staff so they're seeing way more sicker patients per nurse and it's it's just a major major challenge. Well, even from Alberta Health Services' own numbers, I mean, as of yesterday, you know, wait times in some emergency rooms are are three hours, even in some cases up to six hours, which is is considerable. So, how do hospitals, how how do ERs even begin to to manage all of that? Why, well, and you know, those are the, the unfortunate thing for. For the Albertans, is that those are average times. So when you see something like a six-hour average wait, like they, there are many, many patients that are waiting 10, 12 hours longer, and and it's really demoralizing because we can't get them, you know, uh, care. We can't get them pain meds. We can't treat them their their need, and 
Um, and, and unfortunately, so for example, just to give you a perfect example, what happened on Monday, they has one example, there were 55 admitted patients that were really sick needing to be in, in the hospital in in dedicated spaces in the hospital, but there was no space in the hospital to go. Uh, that's 55 admitted patients in an eMERGE that normally only holds 50 care spaces to see new sick patients. Mm-hmm. So when you, when you ask how do we deal with that, what's really hard is that all of the rest of the eMERGE departments in Edmonton were in similar states. So we couldn't really load level well. We couldn't do our overcapacity surge capacity protocols. It's gotten to the point where, um, you know, it, it's gotten desperate at times. And, and so admin in AHS do absolutely everything they possibly can to move things around. But uh, it, it just gets to the point where it's even difficult to even um, make a dent in that so we can see the 50, 60 sick patients that are on the waiting room waiting to come in uh, to get seen next. Yeah, and this is the reality. I mean, you know, on the one hand, there's a need to call attention to this. But, you know, on the other hand, there's the concern, right, it could discourage people from, from going to the ER. And, and obviously, if, if someone needs emergency care, we, we don't want that. So how, how do we balance that side of it? Well, we need, so we really need um, short-term measures that right now can decan and help us with a little breathing room right now when the departments are like that and then medium and long-term will be staff, staff, staff and, and you know, recruiting and retain, retaining our, 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 our well-trained, you know, uh, staff. But uh, you're absolutely right. Like, none of us want, if you're sick, you need to come to our eMERGE departments and, you, and, and you'll get excellent care when we can get you into the system. It just the, the first part of it is being transparent with everybody and making them understand that, yeah, yeah, we don't want anybody waiting in our waiting rooms. And when you've been there six hours and you see someone else come in and suddenly get ushered in ahead of you, it's because they're, they could very well be dying. And, yeah. and, and so, but starting with this dialogue, so Albertans know how hard we're struggling, because I'll tell you, my, my nurse colleagues that are, that are on the front lines trying to sort out who's the next patient that could come in, their job, it couldn't be tougher right now. And, and of course, people will be frustrated and, and we understand people will want to express their frustrations, but, but the healthcare workers that are showing up there every day trying their best, are they're drowning. And so just understanding that is, is a first step. And then, and then getting a relationship with government so that we can get some short-term solutions is critical. So what can be done in the short term, do you think? Well, I think part of it is going to be, you know, really prioritizing what what understanding what our workforce challenges exactly are and moving some staff around and and trying to, you know, kind of shuffle resources to the critical places and do some load leveling throughout the province so that if a couple of sites or areas are, are particularly in danger, we can we can share that load and and uh, spread that around a little bit, which will take a big provincial kind of coordinated effort, um, which would be different if ever really done. So it's kind of that almost that disaster protocol type thinking. That's the early thing. And then and then, like I said, then we can uh, that'll give us some breathing room so we can really kind of gear up our recruitment and retaining our valuable staff. It's all about valuing the staff that are in there right now and 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 uh, and supporting them so that we don't lose more. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Much more at albertadoctors.org. Dr. Parks, thanks so much for joining us here today. Appreciate this. Thanks for having me. Okay, there you go. There's uh, the view from uh, the front lines. Dr. Paul Parks, president of emergency medicine uh, with the Alberta Medical Association and uh, what they're dealing with, what ERs are dealing with. Um, so what needs to be done? Why, you know, why is this happening, first of all? And there's a lot of different factors all kind of happening at once here. So there are some challenges. And, and you know, certainly I think Albertans need to, to be aware of this.
So when it comes to where you go for groceries, what are the most important factors, most relevant factors, right? I mean, certainly price, value, that's a big one. You know, quality, uh, that's another one. Even proximity to your where you live might be an issue. You know, the convenience, all of those things. But certainly something that's becoming increasingly uh, important to consumers is the loyalty programs, the rewards. Are, are you earning something uh, from where you shop for groceries? Uh, so not surprisingly, maybe, uh, Loblaws, the PC Optimum program, is a big leader in Canada. More than 63% of Canadians use the Loblaws program, according to our next guest. Air Miles is a distant uh, second, way back at uh, only 18.3%. So this is a big shakeup. Uh, Empire Foods, which owns Sobeys, Safeway, Freshco. And for a long time, you know, those stores have offered air miles. That was their loyalty program. That's about to come to a sudden end. Uh, these stores are, are about to switch from air miles to the Scene Plus program. Now, this uh, involves Cineplex, uh, and, and so they've been doing the Scene Points uh, program for quite a long time. Bank of Nova Scotia is uh, also one of the co-owners of the Scene Plus program. So why this switch? Why are these loyalty programs so important? Well, joining us to talk more about that, I'm very pleased uh, to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Sylvain Charlebois, professor and director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Professor Charlebois, great time to be with us here. Welcome back to the program. Well, thank you, Rob. Like I said, I mean, there's a lot of factors in, you know, where people choose to shop for groceries. But, but how important now are these loyalty programs? I actually think that loyalty will be the next uh, battle for grocers. Uh, so when you look at loyalty programs in Canada, there is no competition right now. Uh, the PC Optimum program is unbelievably effective and popular. Yeah. Uh, the majority of Canadians actually do have that program. And so other grocers have to figure out a way to keep us coming back to the grocery store. 26% of Canadians since the start of pandemic back in March of 2020 have actually changed their primary location where they buy most of their food. So people have moved. They've changed habits. So loyalty is going to be a big issue. And, of course, with food inflation, people are actually shopping around a lot to find deals (laughs) as much as possible. No coupons? Well... You need points uh, to save some money. So, absolutely. So, Sobeys, uh, they've been married, quote-unquote, to uh, the Air Miles program for, for decades. But uh, they needed to up their game, and that's why they made that shift. So, when you say up, up their game, what, what was lacking then with the uh, Air Miles program? Or what, what does the Scene Plus program offer? Uh, I don't know, Rob. If you, are, you a, are you a member of Air Miles? Do you have an Air Miles card? I do. I mean, I have both. I have the the PC Optum and and, and the Air Miles. So, don't you find it's been uh, it's been confusing of late? There's all sorts of miles now, different yep. <laughs> different products. What's awkward with the grocery business is that both Metro and Sobeys actually do accept Air Miles. Can you imagine? Like Sobeys, it actually has the same program as uh, one of its uh, biggest rivals in the eastern part of the country. <laughs> So that was odd. And, uh, and of course, Sobeys was not in control of the program at all. And it was actually the second, Air Miles uh, are the second most popular uh, program in the country after PC Optimum, but it's just far, far behind, like way down. And, uh, and so that's why I think they needed well, yeah, selling yeah. private labels mm-hmm. to people. Well, you need to be in control of your loyalty program. 
Yeah. Uh, so this would be a big switch. I mean, obviously, there were those who do use Air Miles, who appreciate the Air Miles program. So there, there's going to be that disruption, right? As you're trying to build up loyalty to, to a new program, you know, there are going to be those who, who are going to be frustrated or alienated by the decision to, to ditch Air Miles. Yeah, so uh, essentially uh, they are going to take some time to uh, make the switch. So uh, if you're concerned about uh, about uh, Sobe's uh, change, uh, they'll still accept your card, I think, until the end of next year. Uh, and then after that, they'll move on with Tassin. Now, Scene is the head scratcher here. I think a lot of people are wondering why Scene. Like, what did they go? Well, there's actually 10 million members. Uh, of scene in Canada. The problem with scene is that most people don't redeem their points at all. <laughs> like I have a scene card myself, and you know you kind of you, you tend to forget that you actually have points in the first place. Now, with these points so based to, being based yeah. in. Sorry, go ahead. Well, gonna, so the scene program, which is is through Cineplex, is it still primarily then you redeem those points for movies, or or are they expanding that? Nobody knows. Uh, yeah. I've been asking around, and I, I, I honestly, I think uh, Sobeys would need to to make Scene their own a little bit. Yeah. Uh, now, Scene is actually also owned by the Bank of Nova Scotia, which is probably why they went with that card, because Sobeys is based out of Nova Scotia as well. Uh, but uh, at the end of the day, you want to make that loyalty program work for both shoppers and Sobeys, and the point I wanted to make earlier is that uh, I think private labels are going to be a big issue uh, because consumers are becoming more frugal. They're looking for deals. So you want to push your private labels as much as possible. You can't do that right now with Air Miles, but you can if you actually control and own your own loyalty program. So my guess right now is that scene won't look the same in a year from now. Yeah, you got to think. In the meantime, though, Loblaws with PC Optimum, with the President's Choice, no-name brands, like they, they've got a real advantage, don't they? Oh, it's unbelievable. I mean, that's the reason why they bought Choppers in the first place back in 2013. Mm-hmm. It was all about the Optimum. And, and the Optimum has actually made the PC program even more powerful and influential. Like, uh, So it's really... It is the benchmark in Canada, and through the PC Optimum program, they can push their president's choice and no-name brands. So it's pretty, it's very effective. So they, so Sobeys and everyone else uh, have a long way to go, but I actually do think that by ditching Air Miles, it's, it's a step in the right direction for Sobeys. What about Walmart? I mean, it's, it seems like Walmart's relying just largely on its its the strength of its brand, the strength of its reputation. Um, do, do you yep. see some of the other giants in in this realm getting into the the loyalty arena? It's a good question. I, I don't see that, to be honest, because uh, as you said, the logistics the logistics at Walmart alone uh, make the difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're able to uh, to um, kill categories, quote-unquote. That's basically the term that we use. Uh, they actually dominate certain categories very well uh, because of the logistics that they have. Uh, I'm not, I don't think that Walmart is concerned about loyalty because people will go and they'll know why they go yeah. there is to save money, basically. Yeah. And especially right now, um, I, I actually think that over the next little while, Walmart will do very well because people will be looking for deals and they will be looking to save some money. So why bother with a loyalty program? Yeah, good point. We'll see how it all shakes out. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. So, Van, thanks uh, for joining us here. I always appreciate the insight.
All right, take care. Bye-bye. All best. So then, Charlotte Waz, Professor in Food Distribution and Policy at Dalhousie University, Senior Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab. Uh, so his thoughts on uh, how things are shaking out in the grocery market. And so a big move by Empire Foods, which owns, you know, Sobeys, Safeway, Freshco. They're ditching the air miles. They're getting on the scene bandwagon. As, as Sylvan points out, scene already has 10 million members. So you're starting from a good place, but you may need to change that program. You know, it's the idea of being able to go see free movies. Is that enough, you know, to convince people to go buy groceries at Sobeys? Like the PC Optimum program, you know, you get those points and then you can use those points to buy those very same groceries or buy gasoline or here in Alberta, you can use those points at the, uh, you know, the uh, liquor stores, the real Canadian liquor stores. You can now get points uh, when you get gas, right, at uh, Mobile and Esso. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's dominant in that realm. As, as he mentioned, 63% of Canadians use the PC Optima program. That's massive. Uh, so it's going to be hard to compete against that, but obviously Empire feels that it needs to. And so how much does this, all of this matter to consumers? Uh, I got a text here that says, I'm disappointed that Air Miles is getting dropped. I take care to maximize points to get money off groceries. I usually have $10 uh, every time I shop, and that's important to me. Because you can convert some of those Air Miles to dollars. I think some of the aspects are, are maybe kind of confusing about how that all works. Maybe that's one of the downsides uh, of the Air Miles program. And it's a reason why, you know, about 18% of Canadians use air miles, 63% use the PC Optimum, right? That says a lot. A couple other ones here. This one says, I shop exclusively at Superstore for groceries because of the benefits of the Optimum program, and they match prices found on the Flip app. That's interesting. Uh, Let's see another one here. says, I use the rewards card at Save on Foods. You get lower prices and points as well. Yeah, that's one. Uh, Someone else says, "I I don't want gimmicks. I want lower prices. That's it. And I think that's kind of the Walmart message, isn't it? That's the brand. That's the reputation, certainly. And so Walmart's a big player, obviously, in in the grocery realm. And so that's the approach they're taking. Uh, This one says, my hubby has his own business, so makes big purchases and gets lots of air miles. We almost got $2,000 worth of Costco cards with it. We also have a PC card. They'll love that. Use the points all the time for free groceries. And I don't mean $5 here or there. I mean like $60 or more. We use it as a debit card and then each month pay it off totally. So the PC points add up quick. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770CHQR.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.